Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast with me, your host, James Clark. On this month's podcast, we speak to the representative for North West Durham, Richard Holden MP, Stuart Anderson, MP for Wolverhampton Southwest, and Will Hall, member of the CFAT leadership team. First guest is Richard Holden. Richard was elected in December 2019. He's worked in both the public and private sectors, as well as in political campaigning. Most recently, before becoming an MP, he works in the Department for Education as a special advisor to the Secretary of State for Education. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today um, on the CF Armed Forces podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here, James. Um, Obviously, you know, you you and I have been friends for a long time now, um, but uh, it would be remiss of me. Too long, James. Too long. Too long, long. indeed. But it it would be remiss of me not to say, um, on behalf of all of our members, a huge congratulations on becoming a Member of Parliament approximately a year ago. Um, Could you talk us a little bit about your campaign in 2019, uh, you know, the way it came about and what you did to overcome um, Laura Piddock, your challenge, well, no, the the incumbent. The incumbent, yeah, Laura Pidcock, the incumbent. I mean, what a nightmare. Um, No, so, uh, yeah, well, I was the um, the last candidate, the last Tory candidate to be selected, I think, even after... Even after you, in fact, I did consider going for Islington, um, but uh, just I for fun. Of it. But I thought better of it and thought, thought maybe, maybe you know, I'll have a look at the numbers. Northwest Durham looks all right. Um, yeah, no. So the oddest thing that happened is actually the, um, the there was a candidate before me, but they they pulled out uh, quite late on in the day, and I think basically. Um, uh, so I was on the candidates list. I'd applied for a few seats, but not really got anywhere. And um, uh, and uh, Northwest Durham, very similar sort of place to where I grew up, just on the flip side. So it's on the east side of the Pennines rather than the uh, west side of the Pennines, uh, which means it's a bit drier, but a bit colder. Um, but very similar in a lot of ways, um, sort of deindustrialized area. And um, I think somebody just thought, you know what, this might be all right. Um, all right. And... Um, and so I was tipped, uh, uh, called by central office about the, uh, and uh, just thought, well, why not I'll give it a go? Um, uh, and yeah, and here we here we go. Uh, we, you know, four weeks four weeks after I was uh, I was I was nominated, I was the I was the MP. Well, that's that's fantastic. I mean, and and that's that's brilliant. I mean, what, how did you do a lot of social media stuff? Was it knocking on doors, hustings? What you know, what are the memorable oh, parts? What stands out? So, I mean, we did, we did, we really hit. We had a very, very small team. Uh, me, David, who's uh, who's uh, ex engineer, who's in his mid sixties. Marion, a retired school teacher in her early seventies, and then uh, my dad came up for a few days uh, with the dog. <laughs> And uh, the, the cookie, who's Cookie the dog, is about 15 years old. And uh, if you wanted to speed canvassing, you wouldn't put her and my dad together because he's about 20 stone and uh, very <laughs> slow moving. So um, we had, so that was the campaign team. But a few friends came up as well, which was fantastic over the course of the campaign. People came up for a few days here and there. But to be honest, when I was selected, I thought, well, we'll have a good chance at, you know, really cutting into the majority. Um, but, you know, it was a very l- real long shot for us to actually win. Um, but after a couple of weeks of going around door to door, a lot of social media as well, um, you know, just getting as much out there as we could. Um, 
you, you know, it just it just started to happen. It just you could feel it on the doorstep. People, and by the end of the campaign, uh, within the last sort of three or four days, people were people were saying to me, um, "Do you think you can? Do you think you can win? Because if you think you can win, I'll bother to turn out and vote." It suddenly became a, "I'll vote for you if you think you can win." <laughs> and me having to say to them, "I'll win if you turn out and vote for me." Um, so it was um, it was people were ready for it. The, the, by the end of the campaign, people were people were ready for it. They'd seen enough of Corbyn and McDonnell. Um, you know, they're not. You know, they are not the sort of people. Um, they've done enough of Laura um, as a local MP, who's you know very divisive, very sort of um, uh, you know socialism in one country. You know, just and they, they just wanted they just wanted a, sort of a moderate, one nation conservative vision, which. Um, which reflected their values, actually. And one of those big values, obviously, are respecting the democratic will of the people in the Brexit referendum. Um, so, um, you know, that's where, that's where they really were. And actually, for, on the armed forces side, you know, the, the big recruiting ground for the Fusilier, uh, for, um, for the rifle, sorry, um, up in my neck of the woods, mm. um, and, um, you know, formerly Dunlite Infantry, uh, and, um, and some, of, some other regiments as well, um, but it was, uh, you know, and there's, a, and there's a, you know, uh, two para as well. It's quite uh, in a couple of the uh, the villages and towns too. Um, so there's, you know, there really is a um, that sort of proper local connection to the military as well. Mm. I think actually that sort of Corbyn anti-Britain stuff really rubs rubs my constituents up the wrong way, uh, mm. particularly in 2019. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can sympathise with with them, and um, and you know, it's it's brilliant. You know, as I've said, you know, you and I go way back. It's absolutely brilliant to see you do, doing what you're doing and, and having been so successful. Um, for this may kind of tie in with with what you've said, but on the kind of candidate's journey front, what made you want to stand as you know stand for Parliament? Um, that's a really good question. I think you know I've. I've worked with a lot of MPs. Uh, you know, I've been a special advisor to five cabinet ministers, four departments, worked at central office for seven years. And um, before then, I was a proper little teenage Tory activist. You know, I remember dragging my first girlfriend round my first uh, my first local council election campaign, helping out, uh, helping out to defeat the Lib Dems. Uh, in uh, in my area, I've brought the BMP up in the northern mill towns. You know, helping out. You know, proper. You know, street sort of proper street fighting politics. Um, you know, um, and uh, I think, you know, I think some people feel that they have this sort of innate ability to just go and really succeed and just be able to smash it. They know exactly. They they got this sort of uber confidence. Mm. I think um, for me, I sort of. I was a little bit older when when I probably really realised it's definitely what I wanted to do, um, and uh, and you know that was that's that's what that's what, you know I I, I just I, I did a lot of policy work, particularly in education and a bit when I was special advisor in defence as well and in transport as well. And you start you know and when you get the real grips with it, um, you start to think I could really do this. I'll be quite good at this. Um, I quite like Parliament. Um, and so that's actually what made me move from the background to the foreground, really. So, you know, I, you know, I'd been a worked behind the scenes a lot, but, you know, just um, thinking, well, I could do this and, I'm, and I and I and I see how it works now. And um, 
I, I quite like it. So um, that, yeah, that was it really. Um, and, and I've I've never really been one for wanting to make vast quantities of money or anything like that. Um, it always been quite sort of community orientated. Um, was uh, rather rather sadly was a uh, very involved in scouts and all that sort of thing when I was a kid. And um, so always been quite community community orientated. And I think that's where just where it came from really. Brilliant. I mean, um, I'm going to sort of skip skip through. I'm going to sort of change the order of the questions around. I hope you don't mind. But um, you, you mentioned no, that you've been. I was going to say you probably haven't even read them. Um, but but <laughs> I, um, but there's um, but but you raised uh, the interesting point um, about your. Wasn't there interview is this where they give you the questions in advance? Right? Well, you know. it's a friendly. You know, it's a friendly interview. That's that's the point. Um, but we. Um, but yeah, you, you mentioned that you've been a special advisor um, and yeah. you, you spent some time in defence. Now, I, you'll have to forgive me. I haven't, you know, swatted up. But but when you were, you know, in, in that defence uh, ministerial environment, can you talk to our listeners a, a little bit about what you saw, what you experienced, maybe what the what the daily routine was or what the sort of big strategic questions were yeah. that you were kind of tackling? Sure. So when I was at defence, um, it was when it was... Basically, um, it was when Daesh were um, really on the move, um, and they were—I uh, think they'd—they—they they were. It was very much, you know, they were moving towards Baghdad. All that sort of stuff was kicking off. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they'd taken Mosul, swung through large parts of uh, Syria, and it, so I was there during the basically the big push back against Daesh from essentially what was the gates of Baghdad uh, all the way through. And I remember. Vividly, we had you know um, morning meetings where we go through all of the what was going on. You know, there's horrific images constantly coming through, constantly of what Daesh were up to. Um, mm. You know, uh, you know, setting people on fire who didn't agree with them. You know, stoning, uh, stoning teenage girls to death because they, you know, because they didn't agree to get married to the to some bloody nutter. You know, it was um, it, it was really horrendous. And uh, and those, you know, obviously, you know, we never comment on certain uh, operations that we're part of, but there was definitely certainly British air support was in there, uh, and you know, the uh, give 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 some of the Iraqi forces their due as well. You know, they were they, you know, what they were going through with car bombs hitting them constantly. You know, later these sort of emergence at that point. Uh, back in uh, late 2016, early 2017, of that of what we've more later seen, which is that sort of drone warfare, you know, um, and certainly in the urban fighting in Mosul, it was it was it was pretty grim times. But you know, it was uh, very very interesting just to seeing it all happen there. But you know, for me, um, also at the same time, we'd this is Russia annex uh, Crimea, so we did a big trip out to Ukraine, which was fascinating seeing what they were up to on the ground over there. Um, you know, it's really, really interesting stuff, actually. Um, and, you know, at the time it was also, so I joined just before Donald Trump became president. Uh, and so, again, everything changed, um, which was at the time very unexpected by the entire sort of media and political establishment. Mm. It was thought it was going to be business as usual. 
um, but it wasn't. It was very, very different. And um, so there was a big sort of switch away from uh, to you know to that sort of the new agenda that he was pursuing too. So there's, there's uh, you know, because there are biggest you know biggest and uh, strongest allies. There's a huge amount of stuff there as well. Really, but a fascinating time. But the thing I really enjoyed a lot of was trying to get uh, the Secretary of State out and about and meeting the troops. And I'll never forget something. It must have been sometime in February up in our broth or somewhere like that and seeing the royal marines uh training and uh and uh firing uh, firing machine guns over over a hill at a target they couldn't see and yeah. um these these sort of very you know 20 year old lads there in the you know in their sort of shirt sleeves while i well well michael and i are you know wearing overcoats and uh everything else you know. it was really really fascinating stuff fascinating stuff well, I mean, and, and the way that you speak about it, it sounds like you you really enjoyed it. And I understand that you've kind of taken forward that experience and that um, affinity with um, the armed forces. And you've signed up for the um, the armed forces parliamentary scheme. Can you talk us through a bit about what that what that entails and what, what you've been doing recently? Sure. No, I can. Um, so, yeah, it's a totally cross party. And basically, it's to uh, to help. Um, uh, MPs uh, get a broader understanding of what the military is up to. Because so many of us have no um, military background at all. You know, the generations of who fought in the war or did national service are, you know, certainly either passing away or really not in Parliament anymore. So that sort of understanding of what life in the military is like just isn't there. And it's basically mm. Uh, to give us a taster of, uh, to give MPs a taster of what it's like to be a soldier. Um, so you know, this isn't training or anything, but it's very much we go out, see, uh, go and see the guys and girls doing the training on the ground. So been down to uh, Purbright recently. Been down to the um, uh, where else have we been? I went to the um, uh, the uh, what are they what are they called? Looking out the artillery guys. Uh, to see them firing on Salisbury Plain, uh, then they temporarily escapes me. Yeah, yeah the, the artillery, um, and it was, yeah, and it was just, it's just fascinating. And also seeing young people coming through, you know, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, some people in the mid 20s who've had a bit of a, you know, not the best start, and, um, you know, thinking, right, I need to get myself together, you know, um, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm a really cracking. Um, Adjutant, uh, uh, who's only uh, 20, 26 or 27, captain down at Purbright. Um, I mean, really, you know, who'd, you know, been a bit, a bit of a bad lad at school and had really absolutely turned his life around, you know, just it, really interesting to meet people. And I think for a lot of MPs um, from all parties, um, you know, don't make it party political, but it's very, it's it's a really important thing to to just to get a bit of a feel for something which often in large parts of the country is very alien. Um, mm. It's not so much in somewhere like Northwest Durham because there's you know it is you know you do you know there is a it is a sort of area where people go from but you know parts of the country there really isn't that sort of link with the military. So it's really important for uh, for us um, to get that sort of a bit of an understanding and also a bit of an understanding of the global context. Because, you know, a few years ago when I was in the OD, I mean, we, 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 you know, we were talking about the start of cyber and things like that. Mm. But, you know, four or five years on, my God, you know, the, 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 the cyber warfare and 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 that sort of um, what they sort of uh, call, you know, um, action just short of war, essentially. 
you know, it, that is an, it's on another level to when it was then. You know, the way that the, the information, uh, misinformation that they're constantly putting out, the fake news, you know, the Chinese and the Russians, you know, the, and the Iranians and others. I mean, it's, it's just moved up so many gears in mm. such a short space of time. We're facing a, a very different uh, sort of asymmetric, you know, like you've got you've got nation states acting like terrorists. very different sort of asymmetric warfare. In, indeed, indeed, and which which brings us on nicely to today's announcement, which is the uh, the funding settlement for the yeah. forces over the next four years. Yes, well, as somebody who has uh, the uh, the um, the manufacturer of all Britain's um, uh, tracks for its armoured vehicles constituency. Um, I am very glad to see that uh, there is going that some of this is for uh, for that sort of thing in capital expenditure, um, and you know this is proper long-term extra cash increases for the military. Um, so yeah, no, really good news. Uh, and uh, I, I need it, right? you know. Um, I think uh, we have. Sorry, Richard, you've you've cut out. Sorry, James. Oh, that's am I still here? Now. Yeah, you're back now. Sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, we really have to show how much of a real, you know, leading member of NATO we are. You know, we're not in the European Union, but we've got massive, you know, really strong alliances with other European countries. You know, work very closely with the French, uh, the Norwegians as well, in all that maritime patrol stuff. Um, and, and what I've been glad to see over the last few months is, is actually pushing back a little bit against... Uh, the, you know the, uh, the 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 Russians who are mm. constantly uh, you know and sending um, our uh, there's a little task force up to the Barents Sea and things like that. This is the sort of thing that we should have been doing a long time ago. I think we've been a bit we've been a bit backwards in coming forwards in some of this stuff. And mm. um, you know that you know they um, you know and I think it's it's really important that that we're you know leading the charge in this. And I hope you know we'll see that. Um, I, you know, seen some videos from back in the 80s of uh, Biden, you know, which, you know, before I was born, he was a senator. And, um, you know, he's quite clearly, you know, supportive of Britain over the Falklands issue, you know, and, and other things. So, you know, he's, I think he's, he's, you know, he's rounded internationally as well, which is, which is good, which is good news for Britain as well. I mean, one of the, one of the um, things that, you know, I kind of really would pick out about the funding issue is that with the four year settlement, this provides, you know, a lot of reassurance to industry, which, of course, play a huge role in, in the defence sort of picture in the UK and also contribute to the kind of global Britain exporting expansion, um, you know, projects with companies in other countries and other nation states. And, and it kind of there's a sort of a, a holistic defence boost by this announcement. So it's, it's all, all very good news, all going in the right direction. No, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely, you're absolutely, absolutely, absolutely right. Um, um, it is, it is moving in the right direction. Um, it, it really is, and we've got to, but we've got to keep moving in that direction as well. Mm. This can't be, and that's why it's so nice that it's over several years. I mean, when mm. I was a special advisor in um, education, we're the only department to get a three-year funding settlement, and it really helped. Um, you know, it helps, it helps schools to plan. And mm. things like that. And I know there's only a one-year general across the board spending review because of everything that's happening with coronavirus and stuff. But it's really good to see that this uh, MOD have got that, and the military have got that proper long-term plan for a few years. It's so important to plan because I mean, I'm also sitting on the public accounts committee, and you know we look at some of the military spending in some uh, on some of the decisions which are made, and you think bloody hell, 
Um, and, and a lot of it is because they're trying to do short-term fixes or make short-term savings, yeah. which end up costing a lot more in the long term. And, um, and that's and so I'm, that's what another reason, personally, as a as a member of uh, of PAC, that I'm glad to see that settlement as well, because I think it's a, a proper step in the right direction. Richard, one more question for you, and it's a question that we ask all of the MPs who are kind enough uh, to join us on the podcast, and that is, we have plenty of members and listeners who are interested in becoming involved in politics, either at a local level or at a national level, um, what would be your advice to them um, and, and what words of encouragement would you give them? Well, I'd just say, I'd say, if you want to get involved, just get involved as, as quickly as you can and do as much as you can. Um, I found, because, you know, I've been involved for a long time, but I got involved like almost everybody else in the uh, Conservative Party, basically at very grassroots level, helping a mate of mine who was, um, you know, uh, who was older than my dad, who was running for his first council seat, and uh, going and slogging around with him, knocking on doors in a small community, you know, you, you get to learn a lot. And the key thing is you've got to be able to listen to people, listen to people's concerns on the doorstep, find out what they want to talk about. Uh, and because you can often go into something with sort of preconceived ideas about a, an area or a situation or, um, you know, what matters to people on the street. You know, uh, last a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, I was walking down a, a street in my constituency and some, a lady came up to me and was like, we've got this massive issue. And I was like, what is this massive issue? She's, she's like, well, you're not going to believe it, but it's, it's, there's, a, uh, there's a loose manhole cover and it clunks in a really loud way every time somebody drives over it. And for those 30 or 40 people there, it was, it was, it was, it was, like, it was like this horrific antisocial behaviour that happened permanently. Because they'd reached, they'd reached out to the local council, they'd reached out to the local council, and nobody had done anything about it. You know, a couple, a few hours from me and one of my office team, find out who it belongs to, and get it, get it sorted out within a couple of weeks. And that's actually genuinely affected quite a lot of people's lives yeah. uh, in the fact that you know, and it's, it's actually politics can be very, very local. And if you get the trust on those. Uh, on being able, on actually bothering about what they're interested in, what's affecting their lives on a daily basis, mm. then you can build up from that. So yeah, politics is local. Uh, start on the ground, and um, and try not to have try and try to listen to a, a lot to people. Um, it's certainly something that I've uh, I've learned to do over the years, rather than talk so much, um, as unfortunately I have been doing today, James. But uh, you know, I've, I've now been elected, so you know, maybe I've learned the right a little bit. We are very fortunate that you've spoken so much today and very appreciative. Um, Richard, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man and we'll let you go. Um, but thanks so much and keep up the excellent work in Parliament. Uh, thank you so much, James. It's an absolute pleasure. Stuart Anderson is our next guest. Stuart was a soldier in the British Army and conducted three operational tours before leaving. Uh, he went into the defence and security industry and then was elected to Parliament in 2019. Amongst other things, Stuart sits on the Defence Select Committee and is a member of the UK delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us on Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces podcast. Um, you're an ex-serviceman yourself. Can you talk us through a little bit about your experiences in the military, um, kind of why you joined up, 
what you did, why you left, um, and also um, what you've done since. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, on the podcast. And thanks for all the work you're doing uh, with Conservative Friends of Armed Forces, particularly in difficult times, but definitely raising awareness is key. So thank you for that. So yeah, I, I um, uh, growing up, I never wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to be a farmer. And I used to work on a farm, uh, my Saturday job, enjoy it. I did work experience there and I thought, this isn't what I want to do for a living. Um, so I, I looked, my, my dad had been in the SAS. He, he died when I was young. My mum was in the forces as a nurse. Uh, a, a long history of military um, a, a military family. So I looked and I thought, okay, this could be quite interesting. I was really into my fitness. Um, and, and I thought, oh, let's have a look at it. And pretty much straight from school, I, I signed up and uh, off I went and uh, ended up in the, the Royal Green Jackets. Uh, just before I was 18, actually two days before my 18th birthday, I'd already uh, in battalion, we were on exercise in, in uh, Brecon. And uh, my, my friend had a cook-off on a, a live firing attack. Uh, and for those who know, it fires off because you fired so many, so, so many rounds. The, the, the rifle fires off on its own. And when there was a, a lull in battle, we weren't supposed to be firing. Um, it went off and uh, shot shot me shot me in the foot. So stuck on the stuck on the Brecon beacons. <laughs> How horrendous! I know. Yeah, in the Brecon beacons, um, it, quite an interesting scenario. There was uh, the ambulance broke down. Uh, uh, one of the old uh, Range Land Rover broke down. I was stuck there. They couldn't get me off the mountains. They eventually, after several hours of no morphine or anything. Uh, had to, got me off, got me to uh, Sunnybridge. And, and everyone at this time was having a joke with me and laughing and joking, oh, you're putting it on, it's just a scratch. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm making a big deal of this. Uh, managed to get me into uh, Abergavenny. And as I was going in, um, the surgeon didn't decide to have a laugh and joke. He said, you've suffered a high-velocity wound. We're taking your foot off. And if the bullets travel, we're going to remove your leg up to the knee. I was no like, what? I, oh I did what God. every hardened soldier does. And I cried and said, get my mum. <laughs> I was still only a kid, you know? So um, I, I then had a, a month actually where they managed to save my foot, still paralyzed now, managed to save my foot. Um, and they, they told me at that stage that that's it, your military career's over. But I saw, I say, a month of operations um, and then had 10 months of rehabilitation. And they, they said, that's it, you, your military career's over. You're never going to run and you'll never walk without the aid of a walking stick. So I absolutely refused to accept that. And I did something that was one of the best decisions and one of the worst decisions of my life. I, I decided no matter what it would take, I was going to become oblivious to the pain you have to cut it off it's not like when you hit your thumb or something it hurts for a little bit and gets better this is a continuous pain and for actually most of that month i was on morphine uh, every several hours um you've got something that hurts all the time you have to shut it out but what i did at that time is i shut everything out physically and mentally so you'd feel the pain in the day and in the evening you'd wake up screaming of the flashbacks running through it over and over and over again and they, so you never got that sleep so you had to shut your your mind and your body down to it. I had 10 months of rehabilitation and actually passed. I remember doing the BFT and the CFT, uh, the, the army fitness tests for those that don't know, getting straight back into active service and then literally turned up back in my battalion uh, and went straight to Nor uh, or Northern Ireland training and then my first operational tour. But nobody had ever said, how are you doing? Is there anything you want to talk through? Can we go through this? It, the, the result I got was 
suck it up or we'll take your foot off. So mm. that, that was that was all the uh, pastoral care of the army uh, when I when I got shot. But I went on a, a, and I, I served eight years in the Green Jacket, Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, and had had a really good time and en- enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I had the pain in my foot, but I shut that out. But what what I was I was having quite a few um, issues where what what I look back now would have been early stages of post traumatic stress where mm. I I couldn't deal with, um, uh, with with the pain or thinking about what I'd been through. So you, you I, I, as I said on my maiden speech, I, I I turned to alcohol to to drown that out. In the army. Uh, you worked hard and you played hard, as, as you'll know. So it was seen as relatively normal. But I then then thought, okay, this can't be my life forever. Uh, and at some stage, I need to get past it. So you just you keep thinking you're going to move. And I eventually thought, okay, I'm going to start another career um, outside of the army. And, and I left, uh, became bodyguard, close protection operative. And I started working at a very good level. I, so over the years, I'd... I'd uh, was on an armed diplomatic protection team for a, a foreign prime minister. I've worked in 50 countries, uh, set up a business uh, providing this. I worked at a high level. You know, I did, in the early days, I worked for the Department of Defense in, in, in Iraq, 2003-2004. But I, I ended up traveling all over and having a phenomenal experience uh, working in, in that sector, really. Mm. Wow. I mean, what an incredibly intense life you've led up until this point and and of course you know I think we could probably spend hours talking about your experiences in the military and how they've affected you and and that and I you know Stuart you and I known each other for a few years now and I'd find that fascinating over a pint but obviously with with this being the the podcast how did you go from the the serious injury and the repercussions of that and your experiences in the military followed on with this kind of, you know, I don't want to say jet set lifestyle because I imagine at times it was, it was extremely uncomfortable and pretty grueling, but certainly a a very well traveled, you know, small businessman kind of, um, kind of experience. How how did you get from there to wanting to stand for parliament? Um, Still trying to answer that myself. No, (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I never had an interest in politics. Um, I had this view that um, probably very wrongly, and a lot of people do get that in Parliament, they're so detached, they don't understand anything. Um, so I just ignored it. I never voted up until 2015. Um, I didn't even pay any attention to what happened. But what 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 had actually happened in my life many years before was shaping decisions. Uh, so when I went to Bosnia, I watched how we would give the UK government's aid out to the headman in the village who lived in a, a phenomenal house and everybody else was in poverty. And I was like, well, this is wrong. We need to give it to them. He said, no, they, they'll, they'll be killed. It has to go through this system. I thought that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. I looked at uh, when we went into Kosovo, there were still ethnically cleansing people. Political decisions that had gone wrong and ended up uh, seeing mass war uh, mm. and conflict. Then also I saw in 2003 what a dictator had done in Iraq. And those start shaping and going, okay, well, those are other countries. I love my country and it's never going to happen over here. 
And people can think that's very extreme. But then when everyone started about uh, Brexit, the country is going to break up and, and, and the union, I'm very, very, um, feel very strongly uh, uh, about the union. Mm. I, I was getting, uh, so the, the uh, I was getting concerned that we were going to, well, I, I voted to leave, I voted to leave the EU simply not because I, I was the patriotic soldier, as people would say, yeah, I am. But I, I didn't believe that the EU could govern us better or control what we do better than what we could here. And I wanted to take that control back. But I was concerned that it was going to split the country. And as I said, I've seen the effects of a divided country. Uh, and we're strongest when we're united. So I thought I can either moan about this, I can ignore it, or I can do something. And for quite a few years before, I'd always thought, could I ever do something like that? I went to, and when you look at what people see as politicians, people think they're privileged, they're from a certain background. I went to the worst school in the area. I didn't even take most of my GCSEs. I didn't get any of them. Joined the army at the, uh, the, the lowest rank, although it was a green jacket as a rifleman. So some people say that's the highest. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, it, I wasn't from a background that would have been perceived in my mind uh, as someone who could have been uh, an MP. So I've ruled it out. But it kept, there was this draw where I thought I could use some real world experience and put it into Parliament, help make decisions. So when there is a decision about how, what our armed forces should do, how they should be provided for, and uh, how we can uh, keep our country safe, things like that, or debates about uniting us and bringing us together, I thought I could add something of value. Um, and then I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna push, push the door. Uh, and I did a very, well, I don't know how everyone else gets into politics, but I bought a book, Politics for Dummies, because I didn't even know the difference between the political parties. So I read and I thought, oh, look at that. Yeah, I think I'm a conservative. Um, went through that, looked at it, and then started reading, and then got involved in a local association. Very quickly, I saw that if you've got a bit about bit about you you're prepared to put yourself out start campaigning and getting out there then th there's there's a a welcome you I was welcomed in I thought oh, this is really good within six months of start uh, joining the party I passed my uh what's called the uh, PAB, PAB. Um, yeah 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 to to get through that and to become um on the candidates list and yeah we chatted through that over the last few years um but I didn't know anybody I didn't you know, I had to then go and build a whole network of people. I didn't have any contacts in politics. It was it within security. Uh, I could get hold of anyone. And it was a world I knew, um, uh, defence and security. But this was alien to me. So I, I joined the party to become an MP in 2016. And then I was selected at the end of 2018 in Wolverhampton. I had 12 months prior to the general election. Now, there was a 1600, uh, give or take, majority held by Labour. My commitment was I moved my whole family to Wolverhampton, my children in the schools, to an opposition seat and fought it. And I fought hard. I was doing 90 hours a day for that 12 months, uh, 90 hours a week, sorry, for that 12 months, um, right up to the general election. 
I had an amazing team around me and we grafted because I was still working. I was having to pay for everything myself. So you're still doing your day job and doing that. So that then the general election came and the rest of they say is history. I'm now an MP. So Stuart, can you talk us through how you built your team a little bit and how you galvanized people in the campaign in 2019? Yeah, that that um, w- was an interesting time because I didn't know any of the team here. Uh, so I came in, they selected me, the association cho- chooses uh, which of the candidates you do like a, a selection evening, stood in front of everyone and they voted and chose me. Then you're like, okay, let's get started. And I use a lot of the skills I'd learned in the military and, and uh, um, bringing people together and leading uh, in, in the political role. So for the first uh, two, three months, mm-hmm. uh, bear in mind, I had people say, you're not who we wanted. That really makes you feel great when you arrive in another city to campaign and you're the candidate and people were like, oh, we didn't want you. Others were, we did, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I then thought, right, I, I've got to win people over. So for the first three months, we had to build up to the local elections. And I grafted, I went on every campaign session. I went everywhere, did everything and I just worked. But what I was doing as well is I was looking and I was seeing who would I want around me? Who's going to help me? Who's going to, get the vision for this and go with me on that journey. And then I started bringing people in and said, look, will you help me on this? Will you do that? Will you, will you do this? And I built um, uh, a team around me that were absolutely outstanding. Win or lose, we were going to do absolutely everything to put 100% in. And on election evening, if, if the vote was against us, which we didn't want, I didn't want to look back and go, well, they didn't do this. So it was all down to <clears throat> me and the team. If we, we won, we won. If we, we lost, I wasn't going to say it was somebody else's fault. I wanted the opportunity and, and we had it. But the team then started buying in and seeing this this lad is really grafting. He's working. Okay. And they, they'd come up with ideas and I'd say, Let, let's try that or not this one. Some worked, some didn't. Some things we got wrong, some we got right. But I led from the front. And I was exhausted, as I say, but it, it was a commitment I had to put in. And little things like moving my family here showed that this just wasn't me going through the motions. I changed of mm. five children to move. We'd never moved from Hereford. Uh, even when I was in the army, I was unaccompanied. So we, we'd never done that before. This was a massive upheaval to our lives, but it was the commitment that we were, that we were prepared to do. And how important has your your family's support in this been? I, know, I mean, that might sound like um like a like an obvious question to ask, but can yeah. you can you obviously there's been a big impact on them. Can you would you mind sort of sharing a little bit a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, my my wife and I uh, met very young. I was a, a, a young soldier, and uh, we were ma- married uh, on her twentieth birthday. I was twenty two, so we were young. You know, I'm, I'm forty four now, so you can figure it, figure that one out. Um, <laughs> Congratulations! That's a good old stint. <laughs> we went through everything as a family. So all those times of alcoholism, all, all that, all the dealing with the trauma, we had to live all that that all the way through and that was very hard but we we've got such a I'd like to think a very strong relationship my wife and I and we take the battles on together and we make the decisions together and we work through that 
it's not i'm going here this is uh this is what's best for family and we do it and we sat mm. down and we looked and we made those decisions where we both owned them and mm. we were like okay we're going to go on a journey we're going to move to Wolverhampton. if it all goes wrong i've got my wife and my children and it's an experience and we'll mm. actually make the most of it during that time so at the moment you know we, my, my children have death threats since this has happened i've had multiple threats uh, against me my wife two days ago um so we talk about the spending review i thought the spending review um rishi did an excellent job my wife turns up school dropped the kids off and has someone has a right go at her in the playground now my wife is no shrinking violet that person realized that they had taken the uh, the wrong person on and wish they hadn't have had a go at her in the playground um so she made it very clear but Sarah, uh, my wife, doesn't. She doesn't have the interest in what goes on within politics, but she has an interest of what we do as a family. Mm. And every single step, when we've had the highs and the lows, she's been right alongside me, walking through that, and that's massive. The children have actually flourished since they they come here. We we get them involved at the early stage and say, look, we're going to do this, and it's very much a close-knit family um and their support to me is everything um obviously in politics to make a difference and to do something important but my my family are everything to me Stuart I I um yeah we we know each other quite well um and every time I speak to you I learn a little bit more and I like you a little bit more and that's very rare um particularly with politicians um how best could um, uh, you know, aspiring candidates or people who, you know, frankly, people who like your message and your kind of conservatism, what can they do to help you? You know, what are you looking for? Are you looking for leaflet, you know, people to drop leaflets in Wolverhampton? Are you looking for donations? How can people kind of support you in your journey? Well, leaflets and donations are always good. Um, so I, I think people to support me on my journey is to to get behind um, what I'm doing. So some of the, I, I've been very vocal already in parliament about issues I faced when I faced mental health issues um, around trauma I'd suffered in the army that I, I've spoke about. And I'm trying to raise awareness from the point of I've been there. Mm. Uh, we, we get slated as MPs because you're a politician. Your starting point is people the average person thinks um, doesn't think the highest uh, view of you, which is to mm. me is a very very strange sort of scenario. As a soldier, people think, "Oh, you're a soldier! Wow, you're this." Mm. As a politician, you're like, "Oh, you're the lowest of the low." That's what people think. And some of the decisions I will make in Parliament won't be to what everybody agrees, but they're all part. They're daily things that I need to make for the longer term strategy. Mm. of what what i'm doing and i would say for all politicians give them give them time give them an opportunity to have a different opinion to to try something different so that from an outside perspective um, my campaign we work hard and i have a 1600 majority a fair wind means i'm not an mp at the next general election and i can't mm. control the external factors i can control the day-to-day -day factors so if people can support me by coming when we campaign, when we're allowed um, to, to do more serious campaigning, 
if they want to come and uh, come and deliver with me for the day, that would be brilliant. If they want to support financially, that's brilliant. Um, but I, I, I would say that don't be so um, quick to judge people in the way they do things. And I, I look at I look at an example of Johnny Mercer. Johnny Mercer, I would say, has done more for the veteran community than um, any politician. Um, this is not discrediting anybody else, but he has fought to get veterans heard. And I think that's mm. absolutely brilliant. But the grief he gets from some of the veteran community is just unreal. Um, it's a small percent. Uh, so I, I think, you know, you need to give people a break and mm. and let them go and get on with what they want to do. And, and to sort of follow on, if people want to get involved in politics, I think, uh, particularly veterans, if we can get uh, veterans into parliament, it adds a very good um, depth of experience. We need people mm. from all walks of life and all businesses and all backgrounds. But I'd like to see some more veterans in there. And the starting point is you can do it, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you time, effort. Um, you know, you're going to have to put a commitment in that is probably far above what else you've done. Now, in the military, you work hard, you go on a tour, you have a commitment, but you're not gambling, in a way, your 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 job. So if I had lost everything, I, I actually had to step back from my job as the general election was called. Uh, and I built a company where I was a C CEO uh, of, a, of a company and I, I had to step away from that to a few huge financial costs to me mm. because one it wasn't fair to say look i'm going to stand as a politician if it doesn't work i'll come back and, and continue doing what i'm doing it wasn't fair on everyone else but then if i lost the election i'd lost my job i'd move to another city i'd move my family i'd have to pretty much start all over uh, and that's that was a big commitment i had to go and go and make that so i believe anybody can step into this but it can take years it, it, and it's a hard process, but you need humility uh, and graft. It is not, regardless of what any person has done in the past, that doesn't mean you start at a different stage on the ladder. Mm -hmm. You need to start working up and, and build those relationships, network, get out every weekend, out campaigning. And that takes an impact on a family life. I, I would say make sure you've got you've got a strong base from which to go from because this is like nothing else I've experienced. I say, talk about threats, abuse, you know, people, there are people out there. I had a call from someone recently. I've got people calling who I served with 10, 15 years ago, tell us some story about Stuart Anderson. That's just low. You know, they're, mm. they're not looking for, Oh, Stuart is a good bloke. They're looking, they'll, they'll find people. There'll be people I've met in my career that, don't agree with uh, what I do or, or we didn't get on. You don't get on with mm. everyone in life. They'll quite happily give the press a story. But, you know, that that's what you've got to open yourself up to. And, and, and it's not easy. That's probably been one of the hardest parts. Stuart, I, it's, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, time's run on. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for, for being so honest and, uh, in, in one way or another, we've, we've covered pretty much all of my questions. 
um, because you've you've been so expansive and and you as anybody who practices kind of what I can see in you is is values based leadership. You know everything is entwined. You know your your family, your commitment to the constituency, your view of the country, and your work and your role within it um, is very very inspiring. On behalf of Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces, please keep doing what you're doing, and we will continue to try our best to support you in the future. Well, thank you very much, James. I, I, I've loved doing this, and the more that we can keep raising raising awareness um, for the armed forces uh, and the great job that the veterans are doing and showing them ways into, into uh, public life. Uh, I'm really, uh, really supportive and right behind that. So thank you very much for your time today. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Cheers. Our final guest today is William Hall, the Deputy Chairman of South Oxfordshire Conservatives and the Oxfordshire Area Committee. A former councillor, Will's careers included advising companies and charities on large, complex infrastructure projects, defence issues and education policy. Will, thank you very much for joining me. Um, thank you for being part of the leadership team. Um, we're going to talk today a little bit about uh, what, what's been happening in the last few weeks in policy terms. And I'll start with a, um, a you know, a kind of a pre-prepared question, if that's okay. It's with the spending review and the COVID-19 regulations, um, obviously it's been a, a mad couple of weeks uh, in the government. So can you remind us, sort of broadly speaking, what's been announced? Hi, James. Yeah, so you've got to cast your mind back a few weeks to the 19th of November when the Prime Minister made a statement in the House outlining some of the biggest investments in British defence uh, in, in living memory. In fact, it's the biggest investment in British defence since the end of the Cold War. Um, it is about, it's £24.1 billion of additional cash over the next four years. And what's interesting is that in our manifesto in 2019, you know, you and I spent all that time campaigning on, there was a 0.5% increase above inflation for every year. So, so in our manifesto, there was a big commitment to increase defence spending. Well, the Prime Minister in his statement went a lot further than that commitment. In fact, this is 16 and a half billion pounds more than previously committed. Broadly, this breaks down into a investment in a new national cyber force and in defense research and technology, and also a critical amount of investment in the Royal Navy. Now, to be clear, because it's important to get the scale of this thing right, because actually quite often numbers can disappear into, into abstract, but this is more uh, spending than any other European country. It's more spending, in fact, than any other NATO ally, except, of course, the US, who spends uh, huge sums of money on defence. And the final thing that, that's really important about this announcement is that it's a multi-year settlement. So it's really good news for the armed forces in terms of their ability to long-term plan to meet the threats of the future. And this is this is something that you know when when certainly when I've been speaking to um, colleagues in the wider defence industry and some of the meetings that I've that I've been privy to, you know what what business and what the defence sector in general and and actually um Mark Menzies uh, MP who was on uh, last month he he talked about this is it's about having that certainty and that security that defence the defence sector can then do 
R&D can commit to spending on projects and they know that the MOD will have the funds available to be able to put some of those projects sort of into action, isn't it? It's not just a large amount of cash, it's a large amount of cash over a time period, which means that businesses can, can plan and that kind of grow the defence sector with the government. That's right. I mean, with with many defence projects, there's an enormously large latency period um, and the lead time for some of this really complex um, investment and programmes, uh, if we think particularly about um, surface fleet um, news that was part of this announcement, you know, it, it, it is critical for the armed forces to have a long term certainty over over their funding. And that means that we can, you know, we can make these much bigger capital investments. Um, as opposed to some parts of this which which you know fall into shorter term um, setups, um, you can also alongside that make those longer term investments to to give our serving personnel the, the kit that they need to do their jobs. And when we talk about the kit that they need, what kind of what you know what do you think that this announcement means for operational capability? Well, broadly, I think there are two main focuses. Firstly, the, the Royal Navy, and secondly, cyber and technology. So just first off on the, on the Navy, um, we've seen in, in the last period a particular uh, importance of uh, geopolitical threats in the world. We've seen um, threats to shipping lanes. Uh, we've seen all kinds of things coming out. Um, so very much the Navy is at the center of, of, the, of, the, of, of meeting future, future threats. So first of all, um, the commitment includes uh, the, um, the replacement of the existing fleet of 13 Type 23 frigates. Those are gonna start leaving on an annual basis in 2023. So um, the new frigates are the Type 26 and the Type, type 31. Um, so the MOD's committed to buying eight of the Type 26. Um, these ships are gonna be built at uh, shipyards in the Clyde. And the first one's going to be HMS Glasgow, which has an in-service date of 2027. And the second um, of these uh, two uh, contract, well, contract reaffirmations are, are the Type 31 frigates. These are more a general purpose ship, um, and they're designed to replace the, the Type 23s. Um, so uh, manufacture of those is going to begin next year, and they'll enter service, start entering service in 2027. Uh, it's, it's also important to look at the Navy aspects of this in terms of our carrier um, strike group. So this is the ability for a country to have a carrier strike group is, is critical to that country's geopolitical clout and it's critical to the defense of the UK. So I see, I see a lot of this announcement very much as about confidence, United Kingdom and the prime minister investing in that confidence and in our role in the world critically. Um, so these new frigates sit alongside as well an investment in the support vessels required to keep the carrier strike group operational. Um, and I think it's, it's a really exciting time for the Royal Navy. It's clear that the Navy's done very well out of this. Um, and secondly, you know, if you think about the, 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 the way in which defense has, technology has to always keep up with the threats that they are facing off against, you know, cyber is, is, is a critical threat of the future. And it's, it, so this announcement also includes the creation of a national cyber force, which interestingly is gonna be a partnership between the MOD and GCHQ. And there's also 1.5 billion pounds of extra funding for military research and development, including the future combat air system. But the, um, the cyber force is going to be a combination of personnel from intelligence, cyber and security, 
all kinds of areas, MI6, Defense Science Technology Laboratory, all under one unified uh, command for the first time. And they're going to be dealing with all kinds of, of threats. They're going to be, um, for instance, they're going to be talking about, you know, um, what they can do to keep people safe online on that kind of domestic agenda, but also thinking about whether there are opportunities for um, active cyber engagements on the battlefield itself. And that, I mean, these the, the, both 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 those broadly, you know, those two kind of operational capabilities that we that we've discussed, that they, they it kind of feels like they're long overdue. You know, I can remember going to um, a series of very interesting um, talks and actually actually performances as well, where um, the, the, they were <clears throat> the topic was the future kind of or modern warfare um, and the future of warfare. And uh, there was there was some interesting pieces and some talks about how the the soldier of the future, you know, is is not what at the moment people probably envisage a, a soldier of you know a soldier currently you know being you know this kind of, this kind of physical fitness for example um, it may be taking a back seat when you know you need to be able to understand complex systems design algorithms and, and your kind of skill set will be different in a, in a cyber perspective. I mean, you know, do you think that's fair to say? We'll be, we'll be looking to recruit different types of people into all branches of the military. For sure. I mean, you can see the, the, the you know, the critical um, need for these high skilled jobs. I and mean, I'll, you know, I'll come on to, to talking about jobs towards the end because it is, a, it is a really important part of those, you know, those new STEM skills that are absolutely mission critical to, to UK defence, but also you know, I, I'm in and amongst the detail of this package and, you know, in the, in the sort of short time we've got, I, you know, talking more in the generals, but actually in the detail, there are all kinds of investments in autonomous vehicles, um, in, in drones, for instance, you know, it's really clear that, that, that this is an investment to, to keep pace with a changing battlefield in which the use of technology, you know, machine learning, supporting infantry deployments, etc. It, it is very clear that technology is going to be a, a, an absolutely core part. I mean, this is why it's so important that, that, that the investment goes in now so that it's UK research, um, it's UK technology that is that is providing this. And, and, and you know, I have to say, it's, it's also important so that we're not dependent upon other countries who have developed the technology first, you know, mm. we are going to be ahead of other countries you know, if, if we are going to be independent uh, as a as a country um, with its own technology base in defence, which I think is, you know, is, is incredibly welcome move by the Prime Minister. I mean, you, you've talked, um, you know, you've, you've crammed a lot into into quite a short space of time. Um, so, so thank you. Um, but, you know, does this, has the, has the announcement rung a kind of shift in the UK's priorities? Or do you think that it's, Kind of reinforcing where we already are. I, I think it, it does signal um, it signals a, a, a relocation of priorities to, to face up to the to the new threats and the threats that are coming increasingly in, in the future. So the, the you know the um, the enhanced capacity of the Royal Navy is 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 critical to a, a globally projected for, um, force around the world. I mean you know the, the Navy is probably um, one of the, the Navy's capabilities work very well alongside ensuring geopolitical security, ensuring um, a, a geopolitical presence of the United Kingdom. So to, to my mind, um, to my mind, this is about, this is, as I say, about the UK playing its part in the, in the world. I mean, I, my own personal view is that 
is that the more the UK plays a role in the world, the safer the world will be, the better the world will be. And so, you know, th there were many people who, who, who have been critical about the UK's um, role in the world. And, and really, to be honest, if you have, have sort of dumbed down the, the capacity for the UK to be a force for good. And I, what I see in this is, 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 is the prime minister saying, you know, no to the continual decline and actually saying the UK is going to be um, is going to be an independent and confident and bold nation and that we are going to make sure that the armed forces have the equipment to deliver on that. So to my mind, it's, it's, it's an extension of the Prime Minister's um, confidence and a new approach to the United Kingdom. I think, you know, for, for those of us who are, you know, who follow Conservative policy and are interested in, 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 in policy, I think this is an incredibly welcome set of announcements. I, frankly, I think it's also exciting. I mean, you know, the UK could retreat in, in, in itself and that would be really, really sad and really dangerous for the world, I think. But we're not doing that. We're putting the money, our money where our mouth is and we're going to go out there and we're going to play a, a full part. So I think that's the, the key shift. The Navy's role, I think, is, is always going to have changed into a more, um, potentially a more assertive role. You know, the, if you think about the threats in, in, uh, in, terms, of, um, in terms of territorial waters um, and I think um, I think the cyber the cyber part of this you know a long time coming, um, and it's great that we're as I say that we're not we're not going to be buying all our technology from from overseas. We're going to be creating it here, and in doing so, we're going to create some fantastic high skilled jobs. And all of this, of course, is brilliant for the union because it would not be possible for individual nations in the union to do this kind of scale of investment on their own. It's only because of the United Kingdom. That we are able to make this level of investment, and it it, um, it it is it is substantial. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, and you know, I I can't completely echo echo those sentiments. I think I think you're absolutely spot on with that analysis, Will. Um, you know, what what's what's been the reaction to the announcement? Uh, I mean, you know, obviously, you and I are both interested in defence. Uh, you know, and 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 are positive of these things. I've I've, you know, received a number of WhatsApp messages that I would consider to be whataboutery, um, you know, people who are really trying to pick holes in something that that, that I can really only see as, as a benefit, particularly when you think, you know, even three, six months ago, some of the newspaper headlines about cutting the army down to 60,000 troops, cuts being made, um, you know, as you've said, this really is Boris Johnson saying to the, the doomsters and the gloomsters, you know, I'm backing the, the, the armed forces. They have a role to play on a global stage. They have a role to play in the essential infrastructure of, of the United Kingdom, you know, and the union. Um, what, what, what's, been, what's been the feedback kind of, uh, you know, it, both in the papers and perhaps also anecdotally, you know, amongst your peer group and your friends? The, the reaction amongst people I've spoken to about this is, it, first of all, it's worth saying surprise because um, you know this. this <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> this this is you know a pretty pretty substantial shift in um, in direction for defence spending, and so you know I think I think for instance I suspect, and this is you know my own analysis, but I suspect Labour were, were slightly wrong-footed on it. They came out in support of it. Um, I think one of their one of their bunch uh, said something silly and then immediately kind of retracted it. But um, generally, people have welcomed it. Um, the new jobs, uh, 10,000 new jobs every year, 40,000 in total across the United Kingdom, you know, in high skilled jobs, 
it's very hard for 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 anyone you know involved in in Westminster to argue against that kind of brilliant mm. investment in our communities and our nation. Mm. I think thinking away from politics, what 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 the the uh, the reaction has been. It, to my mind, the, the 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 quotation that sums up best how how I think this will change the the UK is the the chief of the defence staff himself, General Sir Nick Carter, who said that this news gives meaning to the vision of a global Britain, and that for me is this Prime Minister's vision all over, which is that the UK should be this positive, confident force in the world. And I think this is exactly the kind of announcement that puts meat onto the bone to that vision. And I think it's typical of a prime minister that is really delivering on the commitments he made both before he became prime minister and since. So the reaction has been positive. I think we all in the conservative community should, should, should welcome it. Um, and I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see um, what with this new enhanced capability the UK is capable of doing in the future. Um, thank you so much for, for joining me today and um, I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Great, thanks James. Thanks very much Will, bye bye. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the CFR Forces podcast.